morning, everyone. Uh, we are at the end of our series on cultural wars this week. And throughout this entire series for this past two months, we have been really answering that question and diving into an understanding of the difference between a Christian and a non-Christian, or Christianity in the world. And we have seen some pretty incredible differences on how we view things, how we interact with one another, and how our hope is set on something completely different. And in that process, um, we've struggled each week. I wouldn't say struggled each week, but we talked each week. How do we live in a world that is in this system of ours? And I don't care if it's an economic system, a political system, an education system, but how do we live in a system that is really, for lack of a better word, hell-bent on not just making our life difficult, but demanding that we compromise, demanding that we compromise in order to fit in. And this week we're looking at uh, three sections of verses that I think simply put a capstone on this whole discussion of how do we live as believers in a world that is contrary to Christ, that not just persecutes Christ, not just martyrdom, but the social pressures of having to conform and compromise are all around us at all times. How do we live in that environment? Because God has said, we're here until he comes back or he takes us home. There's no extra quick escape for us. We are here and we have a duty and responsibility. How do we fulfill that responsibility when it seems like every step we take is criticized, where every step we take is demeaned, where it is ridiculed, and where it is, in the end, a matter of life and death. In the book of 1 John, the apostle who was dearly beloved by Christ, who spent three intense years walking with Christ and listening to Christ, even part of his inner circle, writes in 1st, 2nd, and 3rd John some amazing principles for us to live out. And in 1st John chapter 2, he really sets the stage for us and gives us the right perspective. How do we look at all this? How do we really look at the world around us? How do we look at society's influence in us, media's influence us, the political influence us, the entertainment influence on us? How do we look at all of that in just one quick snapshot and interact with it? And it all starts with understanding and having the right perspective. And let me just read through these few verses real quick, and then we're going to go back to verse 15. John says, Do not love the world or anything in the world. If anyone loves the world, um, if anyone loves the world, love for the Father is not in them. For everything in the world, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, the pride of life, comes not from the Father, but from the world. The world and its desires pass away. But whoever does the will of God lives forever. There is the answer of the story. There is the headwaters. There is the pinnacle, the peak. This is the elephant in the room. And it's found in that very last verse I read, 
The world and its desires pass away, but whoever does the will of God lives forever. And John gets to that ultimate difference, that ultimate end story, that ultimate goal and gain that both parties have, the world and Christ followers. The end is the world passes away, everything that is of the world, everything that is anti-Christ, everything that is not of Jesus goes away, deteriorates and falls apart and is destroyed. Whereas those who love God, those who follow Christ, those who take on repentance and mercy and compassion, those who love God with all their heart, soul, mind, and strength and love their neighbor as themselves, they endure forever and ever and ever. The end goal, the end road of these two groups are radically different. And we get to that difference very clearly in verse 15 and 16 of John chapter 2, having the right perspective living in this world. He starts out by reminding us that we are called not to love the world. Not to love the world or the things of the world. And so John clearly defines for us what the world is and the things of the world, especially as he goes into verse 16 and talks about it's the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life. Not coming from the Father, but from the world. He says, do not love that. Do not envy that. Do not wish for that. Do not long for that. Do not work towards the things the world works towards. What does the world work towards? How do you know in the world if you've become a success? From the world's vantage point, what is a success? Well, it kind of depends on what time you were born and kind of depends on what nation you live in. But generally, we would say in America, you are a success with what of the what? Probably have a family, they would say. Okay, probably a family. Uh, education is a huge one. You have to be well-educated. Well-educated. Uh, and, of course, probably one of the big ones, right? You've got to have money. Money. Success. And, of course, nowadays, you're a success if you have more than 10,000 followers or maybe it's a million followers. If you've got a million followers on your YouTube channel or Twitter uh, account, wow, you are, you've made it. And uh, how, how many of us have made it so far? Yeah, we're, we're pretty low on the totem pole according to the world's success. The world also says that you should be uh, young. Uh, the world also says that you should be uh, more, than, more than slightly attractive. You should be in that... 9-10 category of beautiful. If you're that beautiful, then you are definitely a success, especially if you wear your money on your clothes and make sure that you have wealthy, wealthy clothing. And you show it, and you flaunt it, and you have multiple homes and multiple vacation spots, and you retire by the age of 45, you are a success in the world's eyes. And so if you pursue those things, if you love those things, if that's your goal, oh, I want this, I want that, I want this, I want that. If you're into that materialism of success, John says that is not just dangerous. It's flat out wrong to love that. It's flat out wrong to make that your goal in life and a measure of your success. 
Now, not in this verse, but we've seen it before. What is the measure of success for the believer? The measure of success in my heart, my mind, my goal, is one day when the Lord takes me from this earth to the next, He says to me, Well done, thou good and faithful servant. Well done, thou good and faithful servant. My goal is not to be served. Not to be on top, not to be adored, not to be envied. My goal is to serve, to be the best servant, to be the best giver, not the best taker, but the best giver. And so that's when John says, do not love the world or the things of the world. Don't love their passions. Don't love their pursuits. Don't love their goals. Now, there is nothing wrong. Scripture never says there's anything wrong having wealth. Never says there's anything wrong having multiple homes. Never says there's anything wrong in looking beautiful. Never says there's anything wrong in dressing good. Never says anything wrong in retiring. Never says there's anything wrong with any of that. But when that is your goal, when that is how you measure your worth, and that's how you measure your status, and that's how you judge others, That's how the world does it. Contrary to Christ, contrary to Scripture, that's how the world defines itself. Why do you think John has to tell us, don't love the world? Because that's sort of, in my mind, a real basic thing. Well, of course, John, why would would you even have to tell us not to love the world? I mean, I love God, and and we know that God and and the world are are radically different, that the Christian and non-Christian, by nature, are different. It's because the world, those measurements that they have, those keys to success, those standards that they have, they are tempting. They are tempting to pursue. It is tempting to compromise. It is tempting to remain quiet when our Lord is attacked. It is tempting to sit back and say, oh, I'm not going to you know, no waves here. I don't want to be an object of social scorn, so I better kind of step back from my Christianity too much. You don't want to be ridiculed by friends. You don't want to be ridiculed by the people you go to school with or work with. No one wants that. And so there is a temptation to begin to compromise. There's a temptation to say, you know what, this isn't all that bad. They're nice people. They're they're giving people. They're generous people. Well, okay, maybe I can be friends with them. Maybe I can hang out with them. Maybe I can marry them. Maybe I can be yoked to them. And so John has to say repeatedly the refrain of Scripture, do not love the world. Don't love. Don't love it. Don't love its lust, don't love its pride, don't love its envy, don't love its goals, don't love its gods. Because the gods of the world are many. As many different individuals there are, there are many different gods in their mind. Supremely, it's themselves. Ultimately, it's themselves. So he has to remind us, don't love the world. Nothing wrong in enjoying this life and enjoying the things this life has to offer. But when it is your goal and pursuit and you think that's how happiness is defined, and if in your mind you go, if I just had that, if I just had this, if he was just like this, if she was just like this, 
Life would be so much better, rewarding, fulfilled, and I'd be happy. Oh, no, 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 no. John would be screaming, no. No. Don't love those things. Don't make those things the object of your passions and your desires. God is to be the object of our passion. He is to be the object of our desire and devotion. We should be more like Christ, not more like whoever's trending today and someone different tomorrow and then someone different the next day. We are to be passionately trending Christ in our life. Do not love the world or anything of the world. If anyone loves the world, love for the Father is not in them. There is a stark, radical contrast there, isn't there? John says without holding any punches, I can understand the nature of a person based on who they love. Do they love the world or do they love God? You can't do both. You can't straddle the fence and say, I'm going to live in both worlds. I'm going to be a Christian that the world can respect. I won't say abortion is wrong when it's brought up. I won't say homosexuality is wrong when it's brought up. I'll remain quiet and I'll saddle the fence and I'll win them through love. Real love is telling the truth in love. It is presenting the gospel in love. It is not compromising, thinking you're going to win and influence friends. They're going to look at your religion, the way you live it, and ridicule it for hypocrisy. You're not going to win them that way. In fact, you're never called to win friends and influence people. You're called to live the life of Christ through your service, through your compassion, through your truth, or through living the truth. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in them. That's, that's some harsh words of judgment. Because it makes you look inside and say, Lord, am I, am I living in a way in which demonstrates to the world around us that they can't tell that I'm different? That they can't tell that you are the object of my love, instead it's my toys, or it's my relationships, or it's my beauty? What, Father, does the world see that I love? It matters. It matters where you place your affections, who you place it upon, and who you give your heart to. It matters. And I'm not talking romantically. I'm talking what your pursuits of life are. And then... then um, John helps us understand what he means by the world. It doesn't just simply mean like the physical earth. It doesn't simply mean uh, the stuff that we can touch the world, but he's talking really about this um, attitude and philosophy and character of not loving God and not wanting anything to do with Christ because he defines that in verse 16 and says, For everything in the world... Everything in the world, everything that the world has to offer you, everything, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life. And so John sort of summarizes three major issues that the world has no problem with and wants you to compromise on so that they feel better about themselves and they can judge others. The lust of the flesh, 
What is the lust of the flesh? Well, I, I don't think that really needs any describing, does it? I mean, it, it's pretty clear. It is this passionate desire for not just a romantic feeling, but I think it also includes the violence, that idea of it's me against you, and I'm going to win at all costs against you. I am, I am going to just take it to you. So it's not only the romantic idea of lust, but I think it's also that just, I'm getting it. And if you're in my way, tough for you, survival of the fittest, Darwin wins type of attitude. That's of the world. That attitude is of the world. It doesn't mean you can't pursue excellence and try to be the best you can be. It doesn't mean winning is wrong. But it does mean if I do this at a cost to my faith and the testimony of my Lord and Savior, I need to stop that attitude. I need to stop it now. And then he goes on to say, the lust of the eyes, lust of the eyes. All of those things that are mentally happening inside of our mind and our thoughts, where I daydream, or I, I rush to these desires, or I wish for that to be different, or I wish for them or me to be different. I wish for that. All of those things, all those wishes. John says you need to be careful there. Because living in a fake, wishful reality of what you want to have happen is not only not healthy, it's simply not acceptable for the believer. It demonstrates love for the world, not love for Christ. And then he says, the pride of life. I, uh, I've had, I've, I've, I've looked, Google this, basically. Let me just say, I've Googled this before. Um, how are the different generations that we have living named and defined? Have you ever done that? You looked at, you know, what the great generation is, those that came out of World War II considered the great generation, and I may be totally butchering this. I, it's not on purpose, but as I'm thinking through this, I really shouldn't be doing no. Okay, so you look up what are the different generations, and you see the greatest generation, you see uh, that generation, that um, the baby boomer generation that came out of World War II after everyone got home and got married and got connected, baby boomer generation. Then you had... And then some, uh, some people will say, well, there was also that generation from the 60s to the 70s that were just kind of, uh, they were, wow. Um, well, maybe, well, we're all lost without Christ, but kind of that, that, for lack of a better word, hippie, that, that love generation, which, uh, okay, has a whole bunch of connotations with, okay, you got that generation. Then you have the beautiful generation that I am part of that sums up all of mankind, the me generation. Yeah, all about me. Me, 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 me. And nothing wrong with the parents because the parents wanted the best for their kids and so they gave and gave and gave and gave. And my generation became amazingly selfish, amazingly materialistic. Not that no other generation was, but we just really had it in spades and diamonds and platinum. It was all about me, me, me. You have the X generation, which also is my generation, just, just an X. And then you had the millennial 
generation, which I'm still trying to figure out. Still trying to figure it out. And then you have the Z generation. That's the latest generation, the Z generation. Now imagine in 20 years it'll go back to A. I'm not quite sure who comes up with these names, but we're at the end of the alphabet with Z generation. But all of these generations have this pursuit that they want their life to matter and stand out from others. No more so than in this current world we live in where everything is defined by, do people like your posts? Do people like your pictures? Do people like your stories? Do people follow you? There's a lot of me in all of that. And so there is no surprise when I read the very real factual statistics that suicide over the last 20 years has skyrocketed to a pandemic proportion. Drug abuse, alcoholism, highest it's ever been. No surprise because people are trying to deaden the pain any way they can. The wrong way, but they're trying to because they realize that in this me-soaked world, they're not the winner. And it not only shames them, guilts them, and pains them, but it agonizes them. They're in agony that they're not the most popular, most beautiful, richest, most important there is. And I have stark news for those people. You never will be brighter or better or more compassionate or more noticeable or more beautiful than our Savior and our Lord Jesus Christ. He encompasses everything that is good and beautiful and right and holy and gracious and merciful and just and compassionate and truth. It is Him. He and He alone is the pinnacle of what it means to be a success. And His words should encourage us when He said, I did not come to be served. I did not come this first time around to be crowned king. I came to serve. Again, the goal of our lives is to love God and love others above ourselves and to be called in the end, well done, thou good and faithful servant. Is that your goal? Is that your goal to outserve, in a healthy, competitive way, the person next to you? How do I serve the person next to you? Can you outserve them? He continues and gets to that conclusion in verse 17. He says, The world and its desires pass away, but whoever does the will of God lives forever. Um, if you had the ability, let's say you had a sports almanac from 30 years in the future. Okay, Think 30 years in the future, you got that sports almanac, and it shows you all the scores of every sports game that, had any, that were, was played. Uh, that would be pretty valuable, right? Because what, do you, what would most people do with that? 
they may not admit it in church, but they would probably make a trip to Las Vegas and start doing some betting and become wealthy. Oh, there was a movie about that, wasn't there? Back to the Future or Re-Back to the Past Future, Back, one of those, one of, I think it was the second one in the, in the, in the series. But, uh, and that did not end well, obviously. But if you knew who the winning teams were, would you ever purposefully bet on the losing team? No, right? Now I know you're saying, well, I need to make it look like I don't have some kind of upper hand, so I'll do a couple fake bets just to kind of make sure the bookie doesn't think I'm cheating somehow. I mean, I, I understand that reasoning, but in reality, though, if you knew who the winners were, you would only bet on the winners. In fact, I imagine if you realized, and I'm saying this because I want it to stick in your mind, if you realized that the Denver Broncos, step back here a little bit, if you realize that the Denver Broncos never won another game in the history of NFL football, never, in fact, never even scored another point in the history of football, or if Dallas Cowboys never scored or never even had a positive yard gain, in any game between now and the future, would you really, really want to bet on them every week that they're going to win, knowing they won't? No? It's probably one of those definitions of insanity that you keep betting on the losing team even though you know they're going to lose and thinking there's going to be some kind of change. So if you knew the outcome ahead of time, you would go with the winner every single time. This isn't to say verse 17 of John chapter 2 is like betting on sports. It's not. But the idea is there. If we know that the world is going to pass away, if we know that the world's end is going to be traumatic, devastating, and eternal, eternal in its negative outcome, what reasonable person would stand in the world and say, this is me. I'm hoping for a better outcome. There is no better outcome for the world. The world's outcome, the best they can have, and I've said this many times, and it's not just me saying this, I've heard it many times, this is the closest to heaven those without Christ will ever experience. And this is one miserable heaven. Amen? But not so for the brothers and sisters in God's family. Not so for the Christian. The Christian is not destined to look at this as paradise. We are destined to live forever and ever in heaven. And the, the way Scripture describes it in the Old Testament and the New Testament is mind-boggling. And if you read John in Revelation as he sees pictures of heaven, of the present and the future for him, the only way he can describe it as shining jewels. It's shining jewels. It, it, it's a place where God resides and there is a feeling of contentment, happiness, peace, comfort, joy. But every description of the world where they end, it's terrifying. It's absolutely terrifying. Why would we ever want to pursue the world's goals 
Why would we ever want to be acclaimed by the world, accepted by the world? Why would we ever want their prizes, their goals, their passions, their pursuits, their system of thinking, their system of feeling, their system of right or wrong? Why would I ever want that? Why would I ever pursue it? I know the end of it. Yeah, in this life, they may have better stuff than us. They may live longer than us. They may seem happier from the outside. But I know the end of the story. I know what happens to them. I know that betting on them will end in terror. Terror. Having the right perspective of how these two systems end is vitally important. It wakes us up as believers and say, if there's people in this system that is ending in terror, what can I do to convince them to come over to my side? What can I do? What can I say? How can I live in such a way to show them the, the destruction of that system compared to the beauty of a system that follows Christ. And by system, I mean a life. A life that follows Christ. It's never going to be the number one tweet on Twitter. It won't. Live like Christ. But we're not living for the moment of acceptance. We're living for eternity. Every single day. So when someone looks at our lives, who would they say you love? The world or Christ? That love is super, super important because in Matthew chapter 5, and we're going to go through these next two pretty quick. In Matthew chapter 5, part of the Sermon on the Mount, at the end of that chapter 5, Jesus says, not just to his disciples, but to everyone there that's listening, starting in verse 43 of Matthew chapter 5. I'll just give you a second to type that in or flip there. Jesus says, you have heard that it was said. Okay, and that's Jesus' code word for tradition says, religious tradition of the day says this, love your neighbor and hate your enemy. Nowhere in Scripture does it say that, but in religious tradition, as a Jew, you would go, yeah, I love my neighbor, but enemies I hate. I hate my enemy. But I tell you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. Pray for them. Love them. Be compassionate, merciful, full of grace towards those who hate you, who have called you enemy number one. My response is to love and to pray. Not to raise my fist. Not to protest. But to love and to pray. As a Christian, as a citizen, you have different rights, but as a Christian, you are to love and to pray, and that should take precedence. Love and pray for your enemies, that you may be children of your Father in heaven. So basically, Jesus says, so that you want to demonstrate to the world that you're one of my followers, when it comes to an enemy, you love and you pray for them. That's how you demonstrate that you are from the Father. Love and pray. Love and pray. 
that you may be children of your Father in heaven. He causes, and then he gives reason why we're to love our enemies and why we're to pray for them. He says, because he causes his son, that is, God causes his son, the actual ball of light and heat in the sky, because he causes his son to rise on the evil and the good and sends rain on the righteous and the unrighteous. All right. So the principle is God shows what's called um, common grace upon all of his creation, upon those who are evil and good, those who are righteous and unrighteous, the world and the believer. I give rain to everybody, meaning I provide for everybody. I give sun to everybody. I give everybody a day. I take care of everybody every day. They have food. They have shelter. They have life. They live. And God is the God of life. And he says, I give life to everybody. I give opportunities and a day of breath to everyone. And because I do that, you should have that same love and compassion towards those who are contrary and persecute your faith. Love and pray for them, because that's how God treats his enemies. He demonstrates grace to them, even though they don't deserve it. And he gives them day after day after day of grace in the hopes that their own hearts one day would break of that hardness and accept his Son, Jesus Christ, as their own Lord and Savior. He wins them over through love and grace. And he continues and says, Jesus says, if you love those who love you, what reward will you get? Well, okay, everybody pats each other on the back. We're all winners. First place, I get it. You love one another. You know, if I love people who love me, there's really very little challenge in that. Very little challenge in that. He says, are you, are not even, if you love those who love you, what reward will you get? Are not even the tax collectors doing that? Meaning the tax collectors love tax collectors. That's their business. They hate, they know how to do it. The tax collectors love those who love them. So the principle is, what good is it to just love those that love me? You love Jesus? Okay, those are the people I'm going to love. No, 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 no. God says, you love them all. Love everyone this way. Love everyone this way. And that's, this love is demonstrated by service. It's demonstrated by compassion. It's demonstrated by not compromising on the truth. Compromising on the truth is not love. Not speaking up for the truth is not love. think it's cowardice. It's cowardice. It's fear. It's fear, not love. Then he says, um, and if you greet only one of, and if you greet only your own people, what are you doing more than the others? Don't even pagans do that? The principle that Jesus is getting at is loving our enemies. Loving those not just who are enemies, but who persecute us, who ridicule us, who ostracize us, who hurt us. And one day, it may be our very life. It was for these New Testament Christians early on. They were martyred and torn apart. Literally torn apart. And Jesus says, how do we respond to them? We love them and we pray for them. Love them and pray for them. And then Jesus ends this section with, 
uh, a mighty statement. <laughs> he goes, be perfect. Therefore, as your heavenly Father is perfect. Be perfect because your heavenly Father is perfect. Wow. I'm never going to, in any fullness, succeed at this. I need God. I need Christ to help me through this because if I'm supposed to be perfect, I can't do it on my own. I can't love those who hate me. I want to strike out against them. I want to remove them. I want them gone. I want them converted. But I want the suffering and the persecution to stop. I need Christ to rule and govern my heart. We need Him to rule and govern our passions, our emotions, our thinking, our wishing, our hoping, our dreaming our actions, our steps. In Philippians chapter 2, Paul writes in verse 3, he says, Do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit. Rather, in humility, value others above yourself. If you want to know how the Christian lives in a non-Christian world, how the Christian lives in a culture and a society that not just suppresses the truth, but exchanges the truth for a lie. How do you live in a society like that? Don't think that you are holier than them. Don't start judging them. Love them and pray for them. Love them and pray for them. Love them and pray for them. In Psalm 73, where we end today, in Psalm 73, the very last verse of that psalm, I'll read it. It says, But as for me, it is good to be near God. I have made the sovereign Lord my refuge, and I will tell of all your deeds. That verse packs an incredible amount of significance in how to live in a fallen world. How to live with a world that is contrary to our nature, our character, our values, and our goals. Run to the Lord for refuge. It is a good thing to be near to Him, to have that relationship, to have that communion, to have that fellowship with Him. It is a good thing to have God as your protector, as your shield, as your defender, as your castle, as your bulwark, as your protector, as your alarm system. It is good to have God in that relationship with you. And then the psalmist says, and in addition to that, tell people about what he's done for you. Tell people what he's done. Tell people about his love. Tell people about his forgiveness. Tell people about his mercy. Tell people about how he brings sunshine and food and water to the righteous and the unrighteous alike without discrimination. Tell others how your goal is to serve and not be the spotlight, but to shine your life for Christ. Let's pray.
Father, you, you've called us to do a lot of things. And, and Father, it is hard at times to kind of put all these different priorities in our mind and in action. But Father, if there's one thing that you can grant us today as we walk out into this world that is contrary and hostile to your character, I pray, Father, that they would see in us love and a people of prayer. Help those, Father, that are contrary to the gospel who substitute lies for the truth, bring them to repentance. Bring them to a knowledge of you and your goodness. May they also enjoy the forgiveness and mercy that you've granted us. And may we live and speak in a way that demonstrates that love and that mercy, that compassion and the truth. Father, hold us steady. It is so tempting to compromise and love the world, to be accepted. Help us, Father. Keep us from that temptation. And may we be great witnesses of your Son. In Jesus' name, all of God's people said, Amen. Amen. Have a wonderful rest of the week. And if you have not picked up some of those...